Tits up is both an expression used when things have gone terribly wrong and a phrase coined as a rallying cry to stand up straight, own the stage, and knock them dead. There are few things in this world that can make your life go tits up more quickly than a breast cancer diagnosis, especially for adolescent and young adult women. This podcast is meant to give us AYAs, a feeling of community, understanding, and power, helping us to walk into each day with a feeling of tits up. Welcome back, listeners, to another week of Tits Up. I am Megan, and I am joined by my fabulous co-host, Sam. Sam just got extensions. Look at those. Look at that hair. It is beautiful. Loving it. We are joined today, listeners, by a very exciting uh, guest. I'm very, very excited about this. Um, Katie Doble is with us today, and Katie and I have been talking for months and months, um, not only about having her on the podcast, but just you know, connecting on cancer in general and having cancer as a young AYA. Um, and we are just absolutely thrilled to have her here. So Katie, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's so exciting. Um, all right. So Katie, we usually do a introduction sort of by way of your diagnosis. So why don't I hand it over to you? Tell our listeners a little bit about you. Um, what makes you tick? What makes you excited in life? Um, and you know what's going on with your diagnosis and just you in general? Awesome. Okay. So I am 42 years old. And when I was 31 years old, I uh, was having some issues with my vision. And so I went in to see my ophthalmologist and I ended up getting diagnosed that day with a uh, rare form of melanoma called ocular melanoma. So it starts in the eyeball. It affects six in a million people. And if it doesn't spread, it's not life-threatening. And so I went through a week of radiation therapy to my eye. I lost all vision in my left eye. And I got the amazing news that there was a less than 2% chance that it would spread. So my first cancer diagnosis from the day I was diagnosed to the day they took out the plaque therapy, patch on the back of my eyeball was 22 days. And I was like, cool, I'm a cancer survivor, like got that done, check that off my life list and we're good to go. Um, and unfortunately a year and a half later, I, um, I was getting biannual liver ultrasounds to monitor my liver. If it does spread, it typically spreads to the liver. And the one in April of 2014 was clean. And when I went in November of 2014, they found 12 suspicious lesions. And I was diagnosed with stage four incurable cancer. I was given um, 16, 16 months to live. And that sort of um, hijacked my 30s. So I was 32 years old at the time. I was one month shy of my 33rd birthday. And, um, and that's sort of the start of my, my real cancer journey. I mean, that really um, impacted, has completely changed the course of my life. Um, my first doctor, we asked her about clinical trials. So with rare cancers, clinical trials are typically the best course of action. And um, because there aren't a lot of studies being done, there aren't a lot of options. There was one FDA approved option at the time. So my dad is a physician and he asked her, well, what about clinical trials um, to my first oncologist? And she said um, that would be very expensive. And if I didn't have my dad, I would have, I would have just 
said okay because you're the authority because you're the one who has the advanced degree and I would I would I would be dead right now um but thank god I have my dad and he um spent every waking moment on the phone with doctors all over the country from UCLA to Memorial Sloan Kettering at, in New York City and I enrolled in my first clinical trial in uh January of 2015 um at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City. I spent the first five weeks of the year living there, which was actually pretty cool. It was, it was kind of my first, one of my first cancer perks, <laughs> what I call, um, <laughs> you know, the really cool things that come from cancer. And, and there are a lot of them. And, um, and then in the meantime, um, I was planning a wedding, which I think we'll talk a little bit about. And, um, and I was working. My company at, that I worked for at the time had an office in Midtown, so I would, go to my doctor's appointments in the mornings. And then I would go into um, a Midtown office, made a really great lifelong friend who worked in that office that I'm still very good friends with to this day, another cancer perk. And um, by day, I'm a recruiter, I'm a headhunter. And so um, my what makes me tick in life is connecting people and providing resources to people. I think I've proven that to you. It's it's what I, it's my yes. superpower. I love, um, I love connecting people. I'm, I call myself a friend hoarder. I bring people into my network. And then I, I remember, like, I have, I have a horrible memory, but, like, if you need something, I'll be like, wait, I've met someone, and then I can usually figure out who it is, and, and I want to put you in touch. And if I learn something, especially a hard one lesson, I want to share that with people so that they're not left figuring it out on their own as I was. And so what I've really been able to do with um, – with my cancer journey is take it and try to give lessons to other people so that they're not having to figure it out on their own. So I am still a headhunter. Um, the rest of my thirties was, I tell people I spent my thirties trying not to die. I was in four clinical trials in total and from New York city to two in Denver to one at, uh, in Pittsburgh at UPMC. I did a couple of traditional therapies as well, kind of intertwined with those um, those treatments. And in 2020, uh, during the pandemic, I entered my fourth clinical trial at UPMC um, called TIL therapy. It's a form of cell therapy. Really intense yeah. treatment, responded really well to that. I had one festering problem is what my doctor kept calling this one tumor. All the other tumors were shrinking or disappearing, and this one was kind of growing, but it was hollowing out from the inside. And so in September of 2021, my doctor said, we're just going to cut out this one tumor. Naturally, I named the tumor Uncle Fester um, because that's <laughs> what he kept, the festering problem. And so um, I went to Pittsburgh in 2021, um, a year after I had gone in for my TIL therapy, and my doctor surgically removed Uncle Fester and all remaining cancer, and he took out half of my liver. And when we, when I woke from that surgery, he said the words that we once thought we would never hear, which was, we got it all, Katie. You are no evidence of disease. I was oh, God. Um, 39 at the time, and... Um, and, and I've been no evidence of disease for over two years now. So I'm very, very grateful. I've taken everything that I've learned. Yes, yay. <laughs> and um, I, I continue to work as a recruiter and a headhunter, but I've also um, become a, a patient advocate inadvertently um, because I, I want to <laughs> share with people, this is what I did. And, um, 
And I love being able to do that. I think it's my life purpose. So I do a lot of public speaking, sharing my story. Um, got a lot of really fun photos that go in the slideshow. Um, <laughs> and just am very, very grateful to be here for the connections that I've made from cancer. Um, I have so many cancer friends. It's it's hard, as you all know, to 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 be in the cancer community. Um, but it's also really rewarding and very, um, I'm just grateful for all the people that I've met. So yeah, that's me in a nutshell. First, I, uh, I love the cancer perks thing. Yeah. Every time you and I have talked, there seems to always be like a hashtag cancer perks. And there yep. really are like, I mean, in any bullshit thing that you find yourself dealing with in life, you can usually find some silver lining. Yes. Like, for me right now, I, I just had surgery like a week ago and I had to, it was a reconstruction surgery. And what they do is they have to like basically lipo fat from other parts of your body. And then, you know, there was some other stuff going on with yeah. the surgery, but in general, I'm like, okay, so I get a little bit of free lipo. Like it's not a ton, <laughs> but you know, cancer perks, I'll cancer take perks. it, you know, absolutely yes, cancer yeah. perks. I love that. And really the, the friend hoarder thing is one of my favorites. I, I kind of feel the same just about like myself in general. Yeah. Um, I have so many different types of friends from different, you know, walks of life and it makes life so much more exciting, but you really have been just so integral with introducing Sam and I to so many different people, people that we've had on this podcast, um, before. And it's, it's absolutely wonderful. So yes. I, I'm so in love with that about you. Yeah. Um, so you talked about uh, clinical trials, and that's something that we haven't talked about much yet mm -hmm. on this podcast. So, you know, what for people that are in a position where they're like, hey, is this something that I should do? Mm -hmm. um, where, where do they even start looking for clinical trials? Who do they call? Where are they? Are there specific doctors, yeah. specific hospitals that usually do them? Tell me about that. Um, call my dad. Just kidding. Don't call my dad. <laughs> um, I keep telling him, I'm like, this is, oh, you're, like, he's good at it. But it's, even for him as an internist, it was a very foreign thing. It's not like he, like, innately knew because he works in medicine. Like, he had to figure it out. Um, but what I tell people is, you know, if you're breast cancer or a rare cancer, find out who the top doctors are in the country. And I always tell people cast a very wide net um, because you want every single, especially if it's a rare disease or a rare subset of breast cancer, you want every doctor to know who you are. When I met Dr. Kamula, who's at UPMC in Pittsburgh in 2019 for the first time, he walked into the office um, and he said, Katie, it's so nice to finally meet you. I've been following your case for years. And girls, I was like, right? Yeah, he knows who I am. Like, I felt so cool. And then I was like, oh my God, Katie, like snap out of it. He's a freaking oncologist. Like, you do not want, <laughs> that's not cool. That is not cool. But the truth is, he knew about me because I was a squeaky wheel. And that's another thing that I like say, like, you have to be the squeaky wheel. You have to talk to everyone. I'll, I'll, I end up coaching a lot of patients, especially in the melanoma space. 
And sometimes patients will say, well, like, well, I'm already talking to this doctor, so I need to see this through first. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You need a plan B. You need a plan C. You Just because you're starting this treatment and you're talking with this doctor here, you still need to be making moves over here as well. And it's hard to do that. And it comes from a place of privilege to be able to do that. And I recognize that as well. We were able to fly to New York City to get an opinion. We had the insurance coverage for that. Um, and that's something there's a lot of inequities in our in our medical system and our healthcare system, which are, I mean, it's that's a whole other can of worms. So everything I say today, I, I try to be sensitive to the fact that there are some people who who cannot afford to do that or don't have the resources or don't have the education to know how to navigate that. But yep. what I tell people is there's clinicaltrials.gov where you can search your illness and who and where are trials being done. There are different. Okay. Phases. I'm going to link that up for our listeners. I will link that in the okay. description. There are phases of clinical trials and they have clinical trials for diabetes and nutrition and smoking and cancer and, and sleep apnea. Like clinical trials are not just for cancer. But um, some of them, there are different phases of clinical trials. And there's phase one to, to phase four, I believe. Um, I'm not an expert in this area, so please don't anyone quote me. Um, but some of the phases, you could be getting a placebo drug. So for us, given the aggressiveness of my cancer, we couldn't afford for me to go in and not be getting um, something. Some of the clinical trials you get you either get, or some of the phases, you either get the drug or standard of care. Um, so that would right. be whatever, whatever any, what, what I would have gotten had I not gone into a clinical trial. And so we were, we were looking for a phase trial that was more advanced that everybody was getting the drug. And again, I could be completely misspeaking. So if anyone out there is an expert in this, please don't be mad. Um, <laughs> I like <laughs> Because I don't want to misspeak, but this is my not you know this is my marketing brain understanding of all of this. I did write that article in the Huff Post, which I think you'll share as well, and that links to professional services and professional sites that will explain it far better than I do. Um, but my point is, you want to find something that you're going to be getting um, at least standard of care treatment, depending on your illness, your prognosis, and all of that. For us, we we did a more advanced clinical trial so that we were getting whatever that treatment was. The first trial that I did, I took, um, it was actually, there were two arms of the trial and it was randomized which one that you entered. So I entered the first arm of the trial, which meant that I was first taking one drug. But then when that no longer, when I ended up getting progression after five months of being on that one drug, I went to the second arm of the trial where I took two, two drugs orally. So they're all complex. They're all different. I, I always tell people start with clinicaltrials.gov to see sort of who and, and where in the country are these trials being run. And then also look up like who is, who are the top doctors in ocular melanoma and go call MSK or MD Anderson or UPMC, you know, try to get in front of those doctors um, as well. I, um, the first where I went with, with ocular melanoma, it is so rare that 
the doctor who treated me at MSK, he's chief of melanoma oncology at MSK, but he's more focused in cutaneous. So for ocular melanoma, it's a totally different beast than cutaneous or skin melanoma. But because it is so rare, a lot of times we're just kind of riding the coattails of the research that's being done for your skin cancer. Um, and what yeah. works for the masses in skin cancer doesn't always work for our rare subset. So there's there's a lot of layers and complexities um, to navigating, but I just my thing is talk to everyone. Don't just start with one doctor, and then when that doesn't work, eight months later you're way back to the drawing board. Um, you want a doctor who is seeing that strategy. That is a strategy we learned from Dr. Pesto at um, Memorial Sloan Kettering, he knew I would not be his last stop. And, or that I wouldn't, you know what I'm trying to say. He knew that I would see other doctors beyond him. And so he was talking about me with my father. They were strategizing the whole time. What are we gonna do when this stops working for Katie? So that he had me stable for eight months, which given the aggressiveness of my disease was a massive win. Someone said to me once, stable is the new cured. And I was like, oh, I am clinging to that. I am clinging to that because <laughs> really like you can live with cancer. It used to be you couldn't. Yes. And in, in today's day and age, like you can, you can, if you can keep it at bay. So all I kept thinking was buy me more time. So they bought me eight months. And then because of Dr. Pesto's foresight, because of his strategy, when it was time, when I was eliminated from that trial, he's like, all right, here's, here are the next players. I'm going to make introductions to this doctor and this doctor, and you're going to go there, and that's what's going to happen next. There are some buttheads out there, for lack of a better word, who think, I don't want you talking. I'm going to take offense if you talk to another doctor. I, I know of a doctor who will fire you as a patient if you get a second opinion. That's rare. What? Um, it's rare and it's not okay. And I get really fired up about that. Um, but thankfully I have built this incredible team that has always, they've been worried about me as a patient, not me as a number for their clinical trial. And so I have only wonderful things to say about MSK, uh, UC health in Denver and UPMC and the, the network <clears throat> that they've created for me and the support that they've given me as a patient I wouldn't be here if, if some of them took offense to that. There's no room for ego. It's very, very, very rare, I want to say. But you have, like, if a doctor is getting questioning or seemingly offended of you getting a second opinion, that doctor does not have your best interest in mind. Gots to go. Yeah. I, that's, that's wild to me. I mean, I, it, it makes sense. There are some industries in mm -hmm. general that I can think of where ego plays a really, yeah. really big role. Yes. <laughs> um, and in, in medicine, I, I understand that a lot of doctors tend to have, and I, I don't mean this the wrong way, but like kind of a God complex, you know, like you have a problem and I am the one that can fix it. Mm -hmm. I am the one that can keep you alive. Yeah. Um, but that's, it, medicine is not the place for that. This mm -hmm. is people's lives. Like they could literally die. Mm -hmm. And so I would think as a doctor, you would want to kind of combine brains with a bunch yes. of other doctors to figure this out for somebody. Yeah. Um, okay. Thank you for talking about that clinical trials. Cause yes. like I said, that's something we haven't touched on and that's really, really important. So everything that you talked about, I'm going to go back through this. 
if there's any link that I can post, I will put that in the description for our okay. listeners. So if you're in the car listening to this, you don't have to write it down. Don't get in a car accident. I'll put it, <laughs> I'll put it up for you. Um, <laughs> so talking a little bit more about, let's go into like the personal side of mm-hmm. things. You know, you gave us what your diagnosis was, what you were doing for the clinical trials and everything, you know, just keeping yourself alive, like yep. you said, in your thirties. Um, but you were telling me a while ago, you know, you, let te- I me, mean, I won't go into it. You tell us about your relationship with your husband and what that looked like at the time of your diagnosis. Um, you go for it. Okay. So <laughs> I love this story. I, um, as a headhunter, I managed to find my husband on LinkedIn. I, <laughs> not a dating app, not my intent. Um, I was trying to get his business. And um, I, but I, I saw his picture and I'm like, oh my God, what a doll face. Like I was just like immediately melted when I saw his picture. And we <laughs> met between that small window of my stage one and my stage four diagnoses. And so I was diagnosed in June of 2013, you know, 22 days later or May, I think I was diagnosed, finished my treatment in June, lost my vision, had this awesome red scooter, had to sell it because it's probably, you know, probably already not safe, but really not safe with one eye. And I was single and dating, (laughs) you know, dating pre-cancer was hard enough. And then dating post-cancer was really hard. And I was... I remember meeting this guy like before I had my radiation and he said to me, your current situation doesn't seem conducive to starting a romantic relationship, but if you want to reach out to me when you're done with all of this cancer stuff, I'd love to see you again. See you again. And I was like, yeah, I was like, fuck you. I was so mad. And like, that is literally what he said to me. And so when I, so October is when I met Nick and I had gone on some dates and I was kind of like not talking about the cancer thing because I'm like, that's a, that's a, a lot of baggage to, to drop in a first date. And I didn't usually make it past the first date. So like, I'm like, let's just not even go there. <laughs> so Nick and I were, you know, messaging via LinkedIn and we ended up meeting for a networking event and, um, or networking meeting. And we, I mean, from the second I met him, like I knew, I'm like, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. And it was a wonderful evening. And, and I slipped and I mentioned that I had just sold my scooter. And he's like, well, tell me what, like, why did you sell your scooter? And I was like, eh, well, you know, like I have cancer. It's like not a big deal. And he was so concerned about my scooter. Like he was completely unfazed by the mention of cancer. He's like, like, I need to understand why you got rid of a red scooter. Like, what? <laughs> and so he knew, he knew what, you know, what was happening. And we had been dating just shy of a year. We had been dating just over a year when I got my stage four diagnosis. And um, when, what I did not know so I get the call on a Tuesday, Tuesday morning, I went in for my ultrasound. I get a call that afternoon from the oncologist herself, which when I do my public speaking, I have a slide that just says, fuckity fuck, fuck, fuck. When I tell this part of the story, because that's what I was yep. thinking. I'm like, I get the voicemail from her and I'm like, this is, this can't be good. Like this is not, no good ever comes when a doctor calls you directly as we all know. No. Nope. And so he, um, so I, call my, I call him right away. He was in a meeting at work. I call my sister in hysterics 
And he met me at my apartment. We lived separately at the time that night. And I told him, I, I just, I can't be alone. Like, you need to stay with me or I'm staying with you. Like, we stayed with each other a lot. But I was like, I cannot be left unattended right now at all. And so it was yeah. the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. And um, the biopsy was scheduled for Friday. My dad flew in on Thursday morning, on Thanksgiving morning, so he could be there with me at the biopsy. And what I did not know was that a couple of weekends prior, Nick had called my sisters and he had told them, I want to marry your sister. Will you go with me to pick out a ring? So everybody in the family knows that this is happening. I am completely unaware because he's British. And so British people don't, you don't go ring shopping together. You don't like talk about it really. <laughs> um, and so I had like, I had no idea this was happening. Like we had talked about, I mean, I knew he was my person, but like time, time wise, it wasn't on my radar as something that was going to happen in the near future. And so Thursday morning we go to the airport, we pick up my dad, um, we stop to get gas, petrol, as he says. And like, <laughs> I literally couldn't even, I didn't even want to be left alone in the car. So we stopped to get petrol and I get out of the car with him because I can't, I'm, I'm terrified. I can't be alone. And I like hug him and I hit the ring in his coat pocket and he like moves my arms up and I'm, you know, I think nothing of it and he's freaking out. I also was trying to change my ringtone as he's driving. So I dug into his pocket while he was driving to get his phone so I could call myself to test the ring tone. He <laughs> freaking out. Don't ever do that. That's so dangerous. Don't ever do that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like what's the big deal? Like completely unaware. We pick up my dad. We go to my sister's house. This whole production unfolds. Everybody's in on it except for me. And I am sitting there like in the depths of despair, like the lowest moment of my life, the most scared I've ever been. And he is down on one knee with this beautiful diamond ring. And my dad gets oh. that. So my very first cancer perk was my dad getting to be there to witness that because he wasn't supposed to be there. He was supposed to be back home in Omaha. And um, it was the most, hands down, the most emotional day of my life. And I, and I hope I never experience a day like that. It was, it was so beautiful, but it was so scary. And it was, I was like, literally in my mind because I had been planning my funeral I'd been thinking how am I going to source a zebra printed casket to bring joy to my family because I have a thing for zebras I mean I was in a very dark place and then all of a sudden I was like okay wait am I wearing black or am I wearing white like what is going to happen what is going to happen with my life because I love oh this man God. and I've spent my whole life looking for him and I finally found him and then and now I'm being told I have 16 months left and it was just um terrifying but also so exciting and that hope he gave me like really propelled me forward how do I like and hope is something I talk a lot about like just and and having something to look forward to so suddenly I was I had something you know I was I was scared but yes. I was going to marry this man and I was going to focus on my hope I was going to focus on the goodness in my life and I was going to continue making plans that fed my soul in a very good way. So, um, and for Nick, my sisters had been saying to him, like, we should wait, let's figure out what we're dealing with. Don't, you know, don't propose. And his response to them was this changes nothing. She's still the girl I want to marry. So, oh my God, my fucking heart. Yes. So uh, I, I tell people I hit the husband jackpot. Like he, he was just, he was in it with me and, and my dad 
my poor dad, because as a, as a physician, he knew, he knew my prognosis. Um, side story, my mom died of pancreatic cancer when I was 15 years old. And she was diagnosed when I was 13 years old. And my dad knew then her prognosis. He knew she had about two years and he never told us that. And I appreciate that my parents sort of, how I appreciate how my parents handled that because I don't think that's something my 13 year old brain could have understood. I mean, my 15 year old brain right. couldn't understand it either. But um, my dad was very worried about me. He was very worried about Nick. And he had the day of my... Um, my biopsy the day after Thanksgiving where I am like just on cloud nine, I'm going in to have a staple gun taken to my liver. And I'm just like, you know, can my fiance come into the room with me? Like I was just so giddy. And the nurses and doctors were like, Oh God, this is like a train wreck. Like this poor girl, she's going to die. And she has no idea. She's just super excited that she, so my dad talked to Nick that day and said like, do you understand what's, what's happening here? And, and Nick kind of, Nick and I were both just sort of, we just refused to, to sit and dwell in that, um, in that darkness. And we just, you know, we never really talked about it, but we just kind of committed, like, we're gonna, we're just, we're gonna fight this and that's it. So that was, um, that was the engagement. We decided we would get me into a clinical trial, um, really for the, month of December, we didn't really talk at all about when are we going to get married? Like we moved in together right away. Um, we just kind of kept, you know, making plans, but we, we were more focused on getting me into treatment and everybody kept saying, you know, when you get engaged, everyone's like, when's the wedding? And I just was like, listen, people, I sent a very, and, and this is on my blog that you can share. I had a, I have an amazing therapist and I met with her and she helped me craft a letter that I sent to my friends and family that said, this is what is going on with us. And this is what I need from you now. And that's one of the big things that I've learned. I've really found my voice. I learned how to own the narrative, thanks to the help of my therapist, of um, this is what's happening and here's what you can do to help me right now. And here's what I need from you. Um, and, and I share that letter on my blog and I've had a lot of friends and family who are going through any traumatic life-changing event. I, I will tell them, take it verbatim take it and send this to your, you know, tweak, tweak it to your name, but send this as sort yeah. of a, this is what you have to be very direct with people. And so the message was yes. basically, this is what we're going through. Please do not ask questions about wedding planning right now. We're very excited to be engaged, but like we are focused first and foremost on getting Katie in treatment. Um, it was telling, I'm a very social person. So people were like getting the news and they're like, you know, like, can I take you to coffee? Can I take you to dinner? Can we get wine? I'm like, no, <laughs> like when you're in, when you're in survival mode, you can't be social. And so I had to say, like, I know it's not like me, but I am taking a hiatus from anything social right now. Like, please do not take offense if I decline your offer for lunch. I, I do not have the bandwidth. And that's a word I use a lot. And I think it's something that if you've been through something traumatic, it really resonates. You have like limited bandwidth. And when you're dealing with a crisis, you, you can only handle certain things. And then when you get into treatment, you get a little bit of breathing room and you then have a little bit more bandwidth to maybe focus on diet or focus on getting married or whatever else it is. But the letter served me very well because it really kind of set the tone to all of the people who were supporting me. And there were many, and I was very grateful that I am grateful, but this is how it's going to be right now. So November was the diagnosis. Um, 
right before Christmas, my dad and Nick and I went to New York City, which became a very special time. Like we, the three of us look back on those trips to New York with such great fondness. My dad had never been to New York before. He was 65 years old at the time. We had, um, we would always plan something fun. We'd go to a show or a museum or, um, you know, the first time we went, we did a bus tour so that my dad could see all the different sites of New York. And he loved Central Park because he's a Simon and Garfunkel fan and he could, and he's a, you know, he's an avid reader. And so for him to be able to see Central Park, which plays and so many songs and so many movies and books that we read was really cool for him. Um, so it was just a very, you know, it was a cancer perk. Like it was a cool thing to be able to get to go and do this. Um, and then we went home for Christmas and then I had to go back to get enrolled in the clinical trial. And my, my big brother went with me for that. And when we got home from that, Nick and I decided let's get this trial started. And as soon as I get, going in it, then we'll set a date. So by the time we set a date, the day we, it was six weeks out. And then by the time we got married, it was three, it had been three months since our engagement. So we had, you know, it was a three month engagement. We had six weeks to plan our wedding, totally pulled the cancer card. My whole family planned the wedding for me. I was like, just send me menus. I'll pick. <laughs> like I'm in New York. I trust you to pick a venue. It was, it was a beautiful day. So I came, I came back, I think September 7th from New York city for that first five weeks of getting enrolled. And then I had to go back every month, um, following, you know, until August, I, I called my trips back, my drug deal. Like I got to go back to New York for my drug deal. Cause I literally had to fly there just to pick up the medication. And then, um, it was February 22nd that Nick and I got married. So nine years ago, um, this month that we ended up getting married and it was just a beautiful ceremony. We, as a friend hoarder, Nick said, we let's just do parents and siblings only. And we pinky swore that. And I was like, okay, we, I can do that. And then behind his back, I invited four of his friends. Um, he was at first a little pissed off. Then he understood why I did it. And then I was like, well, okay, I have a selfish, selfish subplot. I have four friends I'd like to invite. And so I, we each had four friends in our family. And so there were like 30 people at our wedding. It was just not a dry eye in the room, except for mine and Nick's. Like we were so giddy. Everybody else is bawling because of what, what's at stake. And we were just, yeah. I like kept shaking my hips. Like I was just so excited to be getting married. And it was, it was just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it looking back. Um, it was just an incredible day and experience. And, and then we just kind of, we, three months later, we're like, oh, here's an idea you're in the middle of cancer treatment in New York city. Why don't we just build a house? And we did. And we got a dog and we like, we just, we, you know, and we were conservative on the house that we got and none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. And so we, we made sure that we bought right. within both of our means. And, um, and that's just been one of the things in our marriage is we always, every time we take a trip, we pick our next trip. So, you know, we're always have something on the horizon, always, making plans. And we've, we've tried to go to Scotland twice. Um, cancer's gotten the way first, my cancer, and then his father had cancer. And, um, but we just keep making those plans and COVID showed all of us that disease can impact plans. And when that was happening to all my friends and family and they were getting all hot and bothered, I was like, well, welcome to my life. This is how I live my life. <laughs> I make plans. Yes. Sometimes they get canceled. But the important part for me is that we always just had something to look forward to. And so that's been a, a huge theme of, of our marriage is 
just keep keep making the plans. First of all, that is the most amazing story with the two of you, He's like you and your husband. I'm just I'm so obsessed with that. Um, it's also such a for people out there listening to this that are dating or you know that dating doing like first dates or they've been dating somebody for a long time. I think it is really important to notice the difference between the guy that was saying like your cancer is not conducive to this, basically just saying this is not this isn't something I want to deal with, um, versus somebody saying like okay okay yeah you have cancer but what about your scooter you know <laughs> like that that is a that is a part of you that does not scare them yeah and I just want people to know that there are people out there yes like Katie's husband where that is a part of you, just like the color of your hair, just like the way that your face is shaped, whatever, yeah. you know, like these very normal things that people love about you, not in spite of. Yes. Um, I think that that's, that's very, very important for people to remember because we can get very much in our own heads that, you know, like you were saying, like I, when you were like, I can't be alone, I can't be alone. We can get very in our own heads mm -hmm. when we are alone. Um, and thinking that there is nobody out there for me. There is nobody, um, that would ever be able to deal with this. Yeah. I also, I, I'm just, I'm just so grateful. You just told that whole story. Cause there are so many different points in that, that I was just like, yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Um, so you were telling us you were given 16 months to live mm -hmm. and you guys just got married. Um, and you're like, well, shit, you know, what, what is this going to look like? We know that you did clinical trials, but you know, you've mentioned to me before that you integrated, I think a lot of different things into your cancer care. It wasn't just the medicine, it mm -hmm. was diet and some other stuff. What, what else did you integrate? Cause it's been nine years now, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, what do you, what do you credit that to? I credit it to both. <laughs> I'm, I don't know if you've touched on toxic positivity in the cancer space. Um, but if we're briefly, but yeah, we, we get all, after it, I mean, we all know that it's there. Like the people, you know, the people who are like, um, Oh, you just need to eat kale. And it's like, fuck off. Like, no, you don't just need to eat kale. Like I, if you're telling me that my diet is wrong, you're blaming me for my own cancer. And that's not fair. Um, right. So back to the bandwidth, once we got me into treatment, the first time that I got kind of a break from all of it was after I had done, was the start of 2016. In 2015, I had done, I did two clinical trials and I did uh, liver embolization or Y90, which is a targeted radiation to the liver. Um, and that is only FDA approved for metastatic colon cancer. But my doctor told me if I was in a lot of pain, as he went like this, we can get this approved by insurance. And I was like, okay, I don't even really know where my liver is at this point, which is awful, but like <laughs> not a biology major. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like where am I grabbing to show you I'm in pain? We got it approved. And, and that, that therapy bought me three and a half years. Like that was a huge, that either works or it doesn't. And thank God it worked. So, um, they treated half of my liver, so they had a baseline for future systemic treatments. Um, 
but the, so the first half of my liver had been treated and I ended up getting this six month break in treatment at the beginning of 2016. And the first thing I wanted to do when I had that bandwidth, and I knew this all along was meet with the doctor about my diet. I, um, I'm from the Midwest. I grew up on meat and potatoes. Um, yep. if I, yep. if I was having a guy over to cook him dinner, I was making a fresh out of pizza. That was me cooking dinner. Um, <laughs> P.S. I still love fresh out of pizzas. They, and they have a, the best gluten-free pizza because I'm gluten-free now is fresh out of, but I knew I wasn't doing myself any favors. And I, the problem with having cancer and diet is that it becomes very psychological. And every time you're eating, at least for me, every time I ate, I was beating myself up. Oh, I shouldn't yeah. be eating this. I was shooting on myself. And I was really struggling with how to change my diet because I just, I always kind of knew one way of eating and it was basically convenience and what I enjoyed. And I've always been fit and active. And so I've, I've never, I hadn't battled my weight. I hadn't ever been on a diet. I hadn't ever thought like that. To me, I just ate what I ate. And so um, I actually talked to my, the doctor who did my liver embolization. I confessed to him. I was like, I'm struggling. And he said, I need you to call my friend, Dr. Edward Career. And I have a whole blog post on him as well. And Dr. Career is based in Colorado and he works with advanced staged cancer patient patients. And I went to see him. And the day I went to see him, my dad was in town. And my dad ended up staying with me. He usually stays with my sisters. And I didn't want my dad to know what I was doing because my dad, very traditional Western medicine doctor, always kind of poo-pooed that diet had anything to do with your health. And so we had a doctor's <laughs> appointment that afternoon with my oncologist. And I said, well, I have this other appointment in the morning. And he's like, well, what is it? And I was like, oh, I, can't, I can't lie to my dad. So I told him what it was. And he said, oh, I'd really like to go to that with you, Katie. And Nick was going with me. And we had this complete role reversal. And I said, Dad, I don't want to hear a peep out of you. <laughs> it was just like, what he used to say to me when I was little. And he said, no, 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 I'll keep my mouth shut. And he did. He sat there and he didn't say a word. He didn't tell Dr. Career that he was also a doctor. Dr. Career is a Western medicine doctor. Um, he works at Sky Ridge. And he ended up studying integrative medicine when he got his own cancer diagnosis. And so he understands both worlds and the importance of both worlds. And he gave me homework. He said, I want you to read this book called The China Study. And what I needed at that point was I needed the science behind it. I needed to understand why I needed to be eating healthier. So we get in the car and, and then he does blood work. And then based on your deficiencies, he recommends supplements based on that. And so I used to take like 30 pills a day. And I have scaled it back. I, I now take like a multivitamin, and but I was taking curcumin and green tea extract and um, NAC and I mean, just like it, I yes. was taking so many different supplements. But um, my, we get in the car and my dad says, what was that book again? And my dad read the book and he called me about halfway through and he said, I get it, Katie. There's something to this. I get it. And he also said to me later, he said, you needed to control something. You were being told when to go to the doctor. You were being told when you were getting scanned. You lose all control when you're in, in the thick of it. Yes. And he said, you needed something that you could say, I'm in charge of this. And, he, and he's right, I did. 
and I needed kind of something to focus on that was going to have a positive impact to feel like I was doing my part. So I read the China study as well, and it's super geeky, like really scientific. So I, I like read the first half and then probably skimmed the, skimmed the second half because um, it was way over my head. But it gave me like the facts that I needed to know and understand why a plant-based diet is better for us. But the biggest thing that I learned from Dr. Career was 80-20. He said, I'm not, I'm not expecting you to go full-on vegan. What I want is for 80% of the time for you to eat super clean, as clean as you can. Um, and then the other 20%, if you want that blizzard from Dairy Queen, go for it. Um, which oh, let me, let me tell you, <laughs> I very much do. And we, at one point got so much money to DoorDash because I had had a big surgery and I figured out that DoorDash delivers Dairy Queen blizzards. And I literally think we spent $2,000 on Dairy Queen blizzards from DoorDash. <laughs> we did the same thing when I was in the thick of it. We had yeah. a whole bunch of DoorDash yeah. money. And yeah, there was one day I was like, no shit. Are you fucking kidding me? Like I can get a blizzard directly to my door. I ordered five yeah, so that I could put four yes. in, the, in the freezer. That's what we My do. husband's like, what is happening right now? And I was like, I got five. I was so excited. He's like, this is absurd, oh, Megan. so good. Dr. Career, I they remember are. wine was always a big thing. Like, I love my wine. And I remember um, asking him, very reluctantly asking him about wine because I was like, he's going to tell me I can't have it. And he goes, you know what? Pinot Noir is packed with antioxidants. And I was like, I love you, Dr. Career. Thank <laughs> God. I love you so much. And he actually, I was, I had a friend put on a conference, like a health and wellness conference, um, a, several years ago. And he, I referred him and he spoke and I got to introduce him and, um, we had dinner the night before and he ordered wine and he ordered like chicken or salmon. I was, I was nervous to order dinner in front of this man because I was like, what if he's going to judge me? But he really taught me like, just be, be smart, you know, but don't be strict because you're going to end up hating food and you're going to end up, it's going to end up causing you more stress. So that was a huge learning for me. And Nick and I, we eat very clean at home. We do pizza Friday, every Friday. I make a pizza, gluten-free pizza from scratch. It is, you know, and like it has cheese on it. And that is like a sacred tradition. It started during the pandemic. We just did it last night, but generally speaking, we eat pretty clean. Um, and and I'm a little, I'm not as strict as I was in the thick of my treatment. Um, and actually one of my treatments caused me to be dairy intolerant. So I would order things vegan, but then I'd be like, can you add bacon to that? And then the server would be like, what? <laughs> like, cause it was easier to say vegan because vegan is dairy free and people, you know, it was just right. anyway. Right. So I, I was always getting servers to be like, huh? Like, <laughs> Does, does she don't know? try to make sense of it. Yeah, don't try to make right. sense of it. Just put it yes. in. Just put it in the order. Yes. So anyway, but that's, yeah. I, okay. And then I've also. It, are done, there any other things that, oh yeah, go yes. for it. So um, I've tried everything. I've tried body talk. I've tried um, Reiki. There is actually a nonprofit and I can share with you the link, but there is a nonprofit that does free Reiki for cancer patients and they match, they match Reiki masters with um, people going through cancer treatments. And I do a lot of self-care and I used to feel really guilty about it. And now I really own that, like, um, that to me is what I call a kidless perk. Like I, because I don't have kids, I have the time and the funds to be able to like take a Friday and go get a massage and a facial. 
Um, or yesterday I had this incredible energy healer in Denver. I can share, I have a blog post on her as well. She is, she combines Reiki massage, cupping, meditation, and acupuncture. And I, of all the things I've done, like Reiki is my favorite. I love Reiki. And that, if you don't know what Reiki is, it's, it's just, I can't even explain it, but it's like energy work. And she combines it all. And she is just an angel. And I, her name is Joanna and I love her. So I go to Joanna regularly. I'm going to just send me her name. Yes. Or I mean her number. Absolutely. For sure. I I go to her regularly. I just went and saw her yesterday. And um, Reiki, you can do, you don't have to be in person. So I did the Reiki and I'll write myself a note to send you both of these. I did the um, Reiki sessions through this nonprofit during the pandemic. And it was so nice to be able to get some self-care because I couldn't go get a massage or a facial or see Joanna. So I could do this um, over the phone with this woman who would practice this on me. And this was like right before I was going into my fourth clinical trial. And it was just a like those things, they do or don't resonate. Nothing is right or wrong, but you have to kind of figure out what works for you and yep. like honor that and, and allow that. And it would, I mean, it's something that I, continue to do, especially with Joanna and all that she offers. I also have worked with my acupuncturist for 10 years now and he's in Denver and he's amazing. And I see him very, very consistently. I see him every like four to six weeks. Um, and I love acupuncture and he has me on the the grossest tasting herbs on the planet, but like, I do feel like that's been a big part of keeping me, keeping me going. And, and I, and he's also like part therapist, like he's become a very, very dear friend. And when I go and I see him, you know, we kind of, we talk about everything and he, he really helps me to, um, he helps me, he's an endurance athlete. So he helps me kind of figure out what exercise should I be focusing on right now? And exercise has been another huge part of, of what I do. And I finally learned after I ended up last January and February, I was doing Orange Theory, and I was literally feeling like the fittest I had felt pre-cancer. I was, I felt like my body, I finally had my body back. And and I know that anyone going through cancer knows what it's like to feel like your body is not who it was. It's not, it's not yours. So I was feeling super strong. I was doing Orange Theory. I was like running on a treadmill again. I don't have an ACL. Like I was so excited. And last March, um, I developed a diaphragmatic hernia as one does, um, which like you do, like you do, which is super rare. I Googled it and it like only happens in babies. Um, and what happened was when, when the doctor took out half of my liver, my colon kind of migrated up and my colon was like punching a hole and did punched a hole in my diaphragm and it would get stuck in my diaphragm. So I'd have these oh episodes of being really sick and I would say to Nick, I feel like something's stuck. Oh, it was my colon in my diaphragm. <laughs> and so I ended up going undergoing, I was speaking at a conference called Patients as Partners in Washington, D.C. in March of last year. I ended up in the ER twice. And the second time I was in the ER, they were like, we have to transfer you to a trauma center. We cannot even handle this surgery. Um, you are having surgery today. And I had this major surgery. I asked when I left, I was like, was this a major or a minor surgery? Because this, this incision was about four inches and my other incision is like a J-shaped that's like almost a foot long. <laughs> so yeah. I'm like, it's yep. just so little. And they're like, honey, we had to like, we had to cut in between your ribs and like, this was a major surgery. And so 
I was at first really discouraged and mad because here I had gotten so strong. And then my sister said to me, but think about how much quicker your body's going to recover because of how strong you got. So that is my motivation now when I exercise. I get, I want to get strong because I have, we, none of us know what's going to happen next, what our bodies are going to endure. And so from, for, you know, everybody is motivated in different ways to work out. For some, it's a mental health break. For some, it's how they look physically. You know, I think for all of us, it's a combination of a lot of things. But for me, my my main driving factor in exercise is get my body strong um, for whatever comes next, next. So I think that's really, it's really important for just me. I'm just speaking for myself here to hear that. Like I have such a, um, I was going to say love hate relationship with exercise, but it's mm-hmm. mostly just hate. There's, yeah. no, there's no real love there. Um, you I, like it when you're done with your workout. <laughs> I like it when I'm done. I like it when I look good, but like, I just, I had such a, like I was bulimic when I was younger and like, I've always just had such a big problem with my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and then cancer yeah. adding on to that and feeling like she's, she's not even mine. Like my body and my mind are two separate entities. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really, really tough. And I am just now getting to the point where I don't look at exercise as a punishment to myself. Like that's what it always was. Mm-hmm. I ate what I ate and then I had to punish myself for eating that yeah. by working out. I know that that's very, very fucked up. I've got no, a therapist. I'm yes. on it. But like that's that's how I always saw it. Like yeah. I am just now getting to that point where I see it as a means to an end and kind of like what you were talking about. Like I need it to be in good shape because at any point we all know, you know, it could come back. Yeah. We it could yeah. up again. And how is, how can I prep my body to be in the best possible, I guess shape, but I don't actually mean shape, but like the best possible position mm-hmm. to deal with any and yeah. that's, that was just for me, it's really important to hear that yes. because when I think of working out, I just, I get so depressed about it yeah. and downtrodden, no matter what I do, it's never going to make a change. And I'm always going to look like X, Y, or Z. And that's, um, you know, hopefully there are other people out there listening to this that like resonate with this mm-hmm. instead no. of everybody just thinking like, Meg's got like some residual childhood trauma here. Cause I do, but, but we, we <laughs> all- do it for different reasons and it is yeah. there is a hate involved and th- and then you see people who like love working out and you're like what's wrong with me why don't I love doing this and I think kind of like finding and understanding your why is really important um and and for all of my friends it's different you know a lot of my friends who are moms like that's like that's their alone time and so that's why they, yeah. you know, they need, they need that space to be able to just like get into their own heads and, and do something and move their bodies. Um, and, and what I've loved about Scott, my acupuncturist is that he's helping me understand as my body is healing from these things, what I need. Cause I just don't, do I need cardio? Do I need strength training? What, how do I combine it? And what he taught me was as women, as we age, and especially my understanding with breast cancer and some of those treatments is that it can cause osteoporosis. Wait, what's the word? Osteoporosis. Yes. Okay. That's what I was about to say. I'm like, am I making up words? Um, yeah, so I'm, the, I'm in menopause. Yeah. So yes. Like what it automatically just starts like so much earlier eating away yeah. at your bones and they get really weak. And I was yeah. paramenopausal from one of my treatments. Um, but t- plot twist, 
it went away and then my period came back and now I bleed for like five to six days every 18 to 22 days. And I'm like, this is super cool because I can't even have kids. And like, I, and I know now what menopause looks like because I was having the hot flashes and the emotional mood swings, which was the most fun for my husband. Um, Mm -hmm. but anyway, Scott has helped me, like I do a lot more strength training now and I actually really like strength training. I hate cardio. And so I'm like, okay, this is good because now I can like, but I'm, I'm learning and I'm always learning and, and he's always kind of helping me. And, um, I think it's hard to know where to start. I, we have a Peloton and their programs really help me like stay on track and like know what to do because it's also hard to be like, well, what do I do? Like I see the weights, how, where do I lift them? Like what, you know? Right. So anyway, none of it is easy and, um, and it's, it's a constant thing that I'm working on, but I also don't want it to control me or to own me or to be obsessive about it. So it's this fine line of like getting your routine and knowing what is going to work for you. Um, and knowing what you're not going to hate. I like, I know which Peloton instructors I hate. I'm like, their style is way too intense for me. Like I can't, I, I love Day, but like that woman I'm like, I, I, I'm like, I can't do her classes anymore. <laughs> like it's too intense. Maybe we need to tell us Todd. We've been talking about redo, like our basement is not done. Yeah. So we're like, maybe we should do yeah. the basement and then throw some workout stuff down yeah. there because you know, I'm thinking about like, especially in the winter, like putting on clothes and going to a gym. Yeah. I'm like, Oh, I'd rather yeah. die. Like yeah. this is, well, or I'd rather have a shark sticking guy. This is terrible. And, and I can do a class with you and show you like what their classes are like. Because yes. they are, they're great. Um, you know, and, and I do class pass, um, the lightest version like of membership so that I can do a bar class or Pilates or something to switch it up like twice a month. Um, but yeah, that's such a good idea. I will come over. Yeah, no, that would be so <laughs> I do. I do want you to show me that. I've just never seen it in person. Yeah. Um, you have since your diagnosis and since you've gone through all of these clinical trials and everything else that you've explained you have it sounds like been invited to a ton of different places to speak you've written a number of articles on different topics one that i found particularly interesting um it kind of ties into a previous episode that we have um with courtney who is an attorney but it's about you know plant like estate planning um planning for when when and if, yes, um, not we not all do. If, when, like it is. When, like, yeah, yeah, we're all going to. But yeah. you know, um, you, you wrote that. You wrote uh, a. You mentioned a Health Post article on clinical trials. You have a website, and I have it pulled up right here. It is called Love Your Future Happy Self. Yes, and yeah. I have read through that. You know, you have your blog on there and everything else, but. Tell us about, you know, first of all, why do you do the writing? Um, you know, some people really don't like it. Some people love it. And it's the thing that gets them through. Mm-hmm. Um, and how explain all the writing and everything yeah. to me and tell our, our listeners where they can find you and where they can find some really, really good resources that you've encountered over the years. Um, I, the first time that I wrote was after my, my first diagnosis I found myself really kind of struggling to process, you know, it was this like 22 day whirlwind. And then I kind of went back to life and and I was suddenly like blind in one eye and running into walls and um, (laughs) no longer able to catch a ball. But I was in my mind, it was just what just happened to me and where do I go from here? And how do I, 
how do you process that? And so for me, writing is how I processed it. So I started writing. I didn't have a blog at the time. And I ended up um, from start to finish of my diagnosis to finishing treatment. I broke it into five parts and then I created a blog and I like distributed it like once a week for five weeks. And I got a really, really good response, um, you know, mostly from friends and family who just like loved the insight and the intel of like what that, like really walking alongside that and seeing what that was for me. So really great feedback from that. And um, when I got my stage four diagnosis, when I had the bandwidth, I think it was probably 2016 or 2017, I found myself repeating myself. And I decided I'm going to start this blog so that I can, when somebody comes to me and says, my best friend just, just got diagnosed, what do I do? I can say, read this blog, you know, the top 10 things to say or not say to a newly diagnosed cancer patient. You know what? Don't tell them all the people, you know, who died of cancer, because that does not help us. Doesn't help. Certainly does not not help. Interested in that information to the guy standing behind me at the post office who decided to tell me all of that. Um, there, I mean, and there are a whole, a slew of things of like, just what you do, how you help. One of the, I have a a coworker of mine, former coworker who messaged me one day and she said, um, Dave and I are dropping off groceries at five o'clock. Does that work? And she drops off groceries. And I said to her, Oh, that was really sneaky because you made that really hard for me to say no. And she learned it from Cheryl Sandberg her book, um, I can't remember the name of her book, but she wrote a book after losing her husband. And that was one of the things that she learned is that some people will say like, well, what do you need? Or I'm here for you. Like, call me if you need me. And like, when we're in, when we're in it, one, we don't even really know what we need. And then two, you're putting the burden on us of having to ask for help. And so if you can take, if someone gets diagnosed, one, don't ask them questions. Don't, um, don't ask, don't text them every day. How are you feeling today? Or did you hear, did you get your scan results? That was my least favorite. Like I will tell you because maybe I did and maybe I'm still processing it. And so I tell people like, just send a text saying, thinking of you, no need to respond, let them off the hook. And then if you're going to do something, say I'm dropping dinner off, you know, is Tuesday night or Thursday night better for you? Don't ask, do. And that's something that, um, is in my top 10, you know, the tips, um, back to the writing and the blog. Like I I'm learning all of these things and I'm like, I need to like write this down and I need to make it easy to share with people so that, um, and now I get contacted a lot, you know, my, my son's basketball teammate has a dad who just got a brain tumor. Will you talk to him? I I can't talk to everyone, but here's what I can send you. And if it's, if it's melanoma, yeah, those are the people that I talk to, but I, I cannot talk to every, I don't have the bandwidth to, to, to talk to every single person. And so for me, it was a way to share what I've learned in a more concise way. The, the article I wrote on death and dying, um, that's something that I was personally working through. Um, we didn't have a living will. We didn't have anything. And we were newly married and we were in our early thirties. Like, of course we didn't have any of that stuff. And so when I started to explore it, I was like, well, what's the difference between like, what does it all mean? And so as I was sort of learning, I thought this is like, nobody should have to figure this out on their own. We all have to figure this out. One of my friends said to me, none of us are getting out alive. None of us are getting out alive. And so it's inevitable. We're adults. 
get your affairs in order. And do not wait until you're in this desperate situation where suddenly your spouse is on life support and you don't know what their wishes are. Or right. or you you die and you have no beneficiaries and then your money gets tied up in the state. And I had a Lyft driver once who was telling me that happened to her mom. And it's just like, it's the favor is for your loved ones. It's so that they're not making really difficult decisions about you and living with that guilt for the rest of their lives. That they're not having to untangle and unravel all of your assets and finances and debts. And, you know, it's just, it's, you do it for the people you love. And if you don't, yep. if you do it, but then don't tell them what you're doing, then they're going to question it. So it's, it's the, right. the act of getting all of these affairs in order with a lawyer. And then it is also the conversation. And so this is something that I am so passionate about. And I interviewed my lawyer who is a very, very good family friend. I mean, I grew up with her husband. I've known her for years. I interviewed my father, who's a physician who has always talked about death. I mean, death was a dinner table topic for me growing up. And, yeah. and then my mom died. Like, it's, so he is very, he makes all of his patients have some sort of a direct, what's it called? Advanced directive. Um, directive. He makes them sign something. And, and I think that that's the way that it should be. And so for me doing this, and this was also a five part series, they, the Denver hospice actually picked it up and did a whole, like ran it on their blog. And then Ooh. I was interviewed by a local news station. Um, and this is when I was like really new to writing, but it's something that I repost and I cannot tell you the number of times people call me and they say, we finally did it. Like I had a candidate of mine who had found my blog and she called me last year and she said, I printed your blog and I had it on my desk for like two years and I finally did it. It's some, it's so easy to push off, but it is yep. so critical and you don't want to be in a position where you're guessing on this kind of, these kinds of things. And they, and the, and the lawyers make it easy. I'm sure you do this, Megan, for your clients. Like, it's not like you. I mean, you have a questionnaire and, and you, you have yeah. to think about it and you have to talk about it with your partner. And I put my husband and my father as my, um, medical powers of attorney because I didn't want either one of them to have to make any difficult decisions about me. And I don't want either one of them to ever have to make a very difficult decision about me and feel the burden of that decision. And I know that they trust each other. And so I put them both and yeah. What were you going to say, Megan? I think that's, oh, I was going to say, I think that's a great idea. I mean, I do family law, but we do have an estate planning attorney in our firm. Yep. And I am proud to say that I have finally told him, this is what we are doing. We're working on it. And Cody and I actually have a meeting next week with him just to get, you know, all the bells and whistles attached to it. But I love that idea, Katie, to have a number of power of attorneys or powers of attorney or however you say I, it. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't know either because I was, yeah. So Cody and I have talked about death and dying so much, you know, and it isn't a, it was, I'll say this. It wasn't a scary topic for me until I got cancer. You know, mm -hmm. his mom passed away of cancer. My mom had cancer. We've seen a lot of death in our lives. Um, so we've had these conversations before, but when it finally hit me, I was like, oh God, <laughs> like we really probably should do this. And my biggest reason for it was exactly what you said. I don't want to be, I had this mental picture of me in the hospital 
not with it, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm out on, let's say life support or something. I could like visualize this for myself and leaving the decision to him. Now he knows my wishes. He knows what I want. He knows, you know, he'd be able to make that call, but I want it on paper so that he never feels like he did something wrong. Yeah. Or what if we would have left her on, you know, some sort of life-saving support or something for a little bit longer and she would have come back or something or like that. You know, I have your, your family mad at him for making this decision. Exactly. Like paper trail exactly. So that nobody, it, cause there's a lot of space for hurt and blame when somebody dies. Yep. I mean, I put it that, you know, keep me alive. If it comes to that, keep me alive for long enough for my family yes. to yeah. come and say their goodbyes yeah. and then, you know, yep. and then call, call it a day. Yeah. Um, but that was, call it a life, you know, death. <laughs> <laughs> call it a life. There yeah. we go. Well done. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just stuff that you don't, it, it was never a scary thing for us to talk about when it's other people, of course, yeah. but then when it's you, you know, yep. you want to, I want to do him the favor Mm -hmm. um, of not having him. But I also really like the idea of multiple ones because I wouldn't want my parents to feel left out of that call if they're, if they're still around, you know, I want that to be some, I'm I'm their baby, you know, (laughs) like, I feel like everybody should be involved. And that's why you also, in addition to having the paperwork, need to have that actual conversation because I had the conversation with Nick and my dad um, because there, it can be tricky and that could leave opportunity for conflict or they might not agree. So you, you can't have like the highly emotional family member and the, you know, like you have to kind of get the right players together to do that. Yeah. But you need to make sure that they, they verbalized together with you what, why you're making that decision and what that looks like, um, and I, I very much trust my dad and my husband to do that together. But you have to make sure yeah. that if it's not discussed, then one might read it one way, one way, and one might read it the other, and that could, it could cause problems. So it's it's just very delicate. I mean, the whole thing is yeah. very delicate. Yes, and it does nothing but favors to them, exactly. like we said. Yeah. Um. All right. So we are coming up on time, which is like a huge bummer for me because I just want to talk to you for hours and hours about everything. Um. But I usually try to have people give like a kind of like a parting thought. Like if there's anything that you want people to take from this conversation and God knows, you know, we're going to ask you back, but (laughs) from this conversation that we've had, what do you want people to walk away with? So Nick, my husband found this quote, um, Jimmy V. He was a famous basketball coach. Um, Jim Valvano was his name and he died of cancer and he gave this, this famous speech where he said, don't give up, don't ever give up. So Nick actually bought the sweatshirt. Like he has a sweatshirt that says, Jimmy V, don't give up, don't ever give up. And when I was leaving, um, the hospital for till therapy, we put that on a board and I have a, a picture of me bald holding that. And that for me is like, just, there's always hope no matter how dire or grim your diagnosis is, there is always hope and just cling to that. Don't let any doctor ever take that away from you. Um, and it's not foolish or naive to, to, to hold on to that. So that's kind of my message. That's why we keep making plans. That's why we live our lives the way that we do of just keep looking forward and 
don't ever give up. I love it so much. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you guys so much for having me. Absolutely. It just makes my heart so happy to finally have you on. (laughs) Um, So I, um, I, like I said, I will go back through for all of our listeners. I will um, link in the description, everything that we've talked about, maybe even a few other things that we didn't quite talk about. I'm going to have a bunch of links for this. Um, And thank you so much listeners for tuning in for another week on Tits Up. We look forward to talking to you again next Thursday. Thank you, Megan and Sam. Thank you, Katie. That's our show. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Tits Up. We'll be back next week, Thursday, and every Thursday after that. Quick reminder again about how you can support the podcast and help us grow this vibrant community that we are creating. First, whether you are listening to the show or watching us on YouTube, please click the subscribe button and leave us a review. Also, send the show to a friend or a specific episode that you really enjoyed. Second, please follow us on all of our social media platforms. All links are below in the description. Or if you are an elder millennial like myself and you would like to call us and leave a voicemail, you can reach us at 720-892-6669. We want to know if you would like to be a guest on the show or if you have ideas for upcoming episodes, thoughts, comments, concerns regarding past episodes. We would love to hear from you. This podcast is for all of us and we cannot do this without you. Also, please remember, we are not medical professionals, and we are never giving medical advice. Everyone's experience with cancer is very different, and just because we did something one way does not necessarily mean that that's how you should do it. If you have any questions about your health and well-being, please contact your doctor. Everyone take care, and until next time, tits up.